How many of y'all realize that people are very, very confused about what Christian is supposed to stand for right now, right? People think all types of things about Christians, who they are and uh, what they're supposed to do. Maybe those of you online, what does that uh, mean? What does it mean to be a Christian? Now, movies and TVs, uh, they uh, portray, these shows portray uh, Christians as either angry or stupid, right? And when Christians are portrayed in the news, they're seen as judgmental and full of hate. When the Christian perspective is considered in academia, many times it is presented as a fairy tale for weak-minded people. There's all this confusion about what it means to be a Christian. Now, to be fair, a lot of those things we have done to ourselves, right? As Christians and as churches, we have been inconsistent. We've been distracted by temporary things, and we've called out sin in others when we had skeletons in our own closet. We've participated in atrocities in the past, and we've failed to acknowledge that. We've even lifted up pastors and leaders as Christian celebrities, and, and we've almost worshipped them, and then they've fallen into sin. Churches have hurt and wounded and scarred many people. But there are just people that hate the church and hate Christians because they hate God. And Paul had sent Titus to this island of Crete to help disciple and lead a group of house churches in a place where Christianity was not the culture, right? And today, Christians are sometimes misrepresented, but these Christians in Crete were flat out persecuted. So how do we react when we are misunderstood and we are misrepresented? Titus chapter 3, verse 1, Paul tells Titus this. Paul tells Titus to remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. These are some tough verses here. The late Harvard political science, uh, scientist Samuel P. Huntington Notice that throughout our country's history, there's been a wave of distrust in institutions and authority that is cyclical. It, it always comes back. And he, as he studied it in the United States, he saw that every 60 or so years, there is this distrust in authority and institutions, starting with the revolutionary period back in seven, the 1760s. And the last big uh, unrest of this distrust in authority was in the social protest movement of the 1960s and early 70s. And these moments share certain features that people feel disgusted with the state of society and trust in institutions plummets and moral indignation is widespread. Contempt for established power is intense. In the last few years, in my opinion, distrust in authority and institution is at an all-time high. People are angry and frustrated and fed up, and they're ready to fight. But contrary to popular belief, it is possible for people to disagree without being disagreeable, right? That's not something that we see in today's world. We can share different opinions without dishonoring one another. 
This isn't something that we've seen acting out in our leaders or on uh, you know, social media and all these different places. We can even disagree with politicians without dehumanizing them. All people are made in the image of God and all life has value. So here it says we need to be respectful, obedient, and submissive to authority. Man, who loves those things, right? Man, I just love being submissive to authority. How about you online? Is that something you just cannot wait to do? No, it goes against our nature. We want to be independent. We want to be free-willed and we want to speak our mind at every turn. I have to remind myself, look, that I can have an opinion that I don't share with people. That's weird, right? So back in the day, 200 years ago, you would just have to share those, uh, you know, wonky opinions with a squirrel or something like that. You didn't have the opportunity in this megaphone that we have today of being able to communicate with anybody across the world. But ever since then, we've uh, just kind of have the feeling that our opinions are super awesome. And we'd, everybody needs to hear every single one of them. Even things that, uh, you know, aren't that awesome. Like, hey, this food is great, you know. Boom. I'm going to share it with the whole world. Everybody's got to know about this. But I have to remind myself that I can have... Uh, myself that I can have opinions that I don't have to share. And I don't always have to prove that I'm right. It's okay if people disagree with me. And it tells us here that with governmental authority, we should be submissive and obedient and respectful all the way up until they ask us to participate in sin. Look, I'll go to jail before I knowingly violate scripture, but that doesn't mean that I don't pay my taxes. And next it tells us to be ready for good works. Some of us to get so caught up in being angry at authority that we neglect the people that are right beside us, right? We want to fight and yell at the, uh, you know, the news about how we should help the poor when we've got poor in our own city that we're not doing anything about. And we want to, uh, you know, really talk about how we, you know, need to uh, come alongside women and help them do. And then we got a neighbor that needs help. And we've got these, uh, you know, this time where we get angry about things that we're not even doing ourselves. We get so distracted about our boss being a jerk that we don't realize that our coworker is struggling. So then Paul goes even th further. And I think he went a little bit too far here. I don't know what you think. It says to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. I probably need to print that out and put it in my office somewhere or something uh, so that I can remember that. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all people. Don't talk bad about anyone. Avoid fighting. Instead, be gentle and courteous. Where has this verse been all our lives? Man, when I die, I want to be those, uh, one of those type of people where uh, the, the, the people that speak about me said that I spoke evil of no one. Man, can you imagine that? None of us probably are in that boat right now, but I'd love to get there, right? Imagine the self-control and the strength that that takes. I don't know if you know the actor uh, Steve Carell. Uh, but one of his co-workers, uh, you know, uh, on the shows that he's been on, once told a story about him that, uh, and I don't know if he's a Christian or where he stands, 
But they said that, you know, as, it, as you do, you sit around and you talk about people and you laugh and make fun of them. And he, they said every single time something like that started happening where he had an opportunity to talk bad about a director or a producer that he'd always just be like, excuse himself and just, just walk away. I want to be like that, right? I want to be that type of person where I don't speak evil of anyone. And it says to avoid fighting. Some of us, if we're honest, we like to pick fights. We don't avoid fights. We seek them out. We're like a general that just can't wait to get back on the battlefield or a boxer that can't wait to get back into the ring. We look for fights. I've said that to my kids before uh, where, you know, it's just obvious that they woke up in a bad mood or maybe it's me that woke up in a bad mood and, and it's just like, hey, are you just looking for something to be mad about today? Is it just looking for something? And if you look around and you're constantly finding reasons to fight, the problem might not be everybody else. Instead, he encourages Titus to tell these people to be gentle and be courteous. Why? He tells us in the next verse, verse 3. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, Passing our days in malice and envy. Hated by others and hating one another. So why are we uh, trying to be gracious and courteous and gentle and respectful? Because we remember who we were without the grace of Jesus Christ. For we ourselves were once foolish. And when we live contrary to the gospel, we are fools and disobedient and slaves to our passions, hating and being hated by one another. We've got to constantly remember where we stand in the gospel, that I am not somebody. I am just simply a a person that God loved enough to send his son to die in my place. I bring nothing to the table. There's no reason for me to be puffed up and proud. I'm simply a sinner that God loved enough to save. And I'm not better than anyone else. Think about this uh, this phrase here, it says, slaves to various passions and pleasures. You know, sometimes there's this idea that when we break away from God, that somehow we are free. But that's not the truth, right? Breaking free from God is like a fish breaking free from the ocean. We are created to live in the ocean. We uh, don't have what we need on land. And when we Uh, have this idea that we can do whatever we want and we have that freedom, we become slaves to our own desires, doing only what is right in our own eyes. You'll hear people throw that phrase around, my truth, as if that truth is personal, right? But truth isn't personal, it's universal. When we break free from God, we become slaves to our own personal truth all the way up until our truth hurts somebody else and it disregards their truth. And then I hate you and you hate me. But we are created to need God and we don't need to break free from him. We have freedom in him. And our sin uh, becomes a slave master and it hurts us and it twists and taints our soul. But if we remember who we are in the gospel and how Deep, God reached down into the sin and the muck to pull us out. If we remember how much grace that we've been shown, 
then we will be gracious. You can't behold and look at the gospel and remain proud and conceited and arrogant. We can't understand the depth of the gospel without understanding the width of our sin. That we were depraved, but the gospel propels us and compels us to be different. Because we have a Savior that loved us enough. It goes on in verse 4. It says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, when we remember, J.D. Greer says this, when we remember to behold what Jesus has done for us, to behold it and to look at it and to investigate it daily, never getting past it, but always washing it over our heart. When we remember to behold what Jesus has done for us, then we begin to become what he has made us to be. And this helps us behave in a way that pleases Jesus. But too often we try and put that backwards, right? We try and put the behave First, that if I'm going to please God, I've got to be better first. If I'm going to be, you know, a church member and come and, and, and be a regular attender, first I've got to get everything together. But that's not the first step. The first step is to look at what Jesus Christ has done for us and to remember that He has made such a sacrifice and that we uh, need to love a God like that. And then we can begin to become what He's made us to be. And then we can. After we are being someone, then we can be concerned about what we are doing. He saved us not because of our own righteousness, but because of his own mercy and grace. Why? So that he might change us through his Holy Spirit. Paul wanted to help Titus to lead these people to walk a godly and a thriving Christian life in the midst of a wicked society. This is all about grace. The grace that God uh, has given us is what's changed us. We are saved to be different. We're not supposed to be the same. But first it starts with beholding what Christ has done for us. And then because we've beholded it, it changes us and we become someone different. And then we behave differently. Verse 8 goes on and says, this saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. See, it doesn't just stop with salvation. It doesn't stop with beholding. It doesn't stop with being. It ends up, if it's the right way, and we wash this gospel over our heart, it ends up working itself out into our everyday life. We devote ourselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. It helps people. It helps you. Paul tells Titus in this new ministry that Titus has to insist and demand that people remember who they are without Jesus. To remember that it was the gospel that changes them and to let it change them and then allow the good works to overflow out of the love of Jesus. See, grace-given people are gracious. And to be 
these gentle and courteous and respectful people that understands that we're just sinners, that God saved so that we can be trained and, and uh, changed by his mercy and grace. These are excellent things. These are profitable things for you. And this is what the church should look like. Lastly, Paul reminds Titus that there are some people in the church that are there for the wrong reasons. They're there to divide and push their agenda and gain position. Verse 9 says to avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Paul encourages Titus to teach the church to avoid foolish debates and quarrels. There are few things in a church that hinder more people coming to Christ than a church that has infighting, right? Satan loves it when there's strife and division among church members. He can get a hold of that and he can use that. What does the Bible tell us to do here when someone is causing division by quarreling and, and uh, about unprofitable and worthless manners? It says here to warn them twice and then separate from them. Now, does that mean we kick everybody out of the church that doesn't agree with our opinions or they have different opinions? Absolutely not. Why? Because we can disagree without dishonoring one another. We can have different opinions and methods without fighting and quarreling. But many churches have split, and many communities have suffered, and, and, and many communities have turned away from Jesus because there's a group of people in the church that cared more about getting their way than following Jesus. So they pushed and they fought, and they divided a church amongst itself, a family against family. Now, there are things that this church does that if I were to be honest with you, I would do them differently. I wouldn't, you know, change some things. But I, uh, you know, and we all have those things, right? Man, I wish we'd do this. I wish we'd do that. But I know this church is doing amazing things here down in downtown Clarksburg. And I also realize that this mission is bigger than me. And I get over it. Now, I will speak up when I see that maybe we're crossing a line into being unloving or maybe we're taking a step that's sinful, but methods and preferences aren't worth taking the eyes off the mission. We need to create a culture where divisive people don't feel comfortable being divisive. And one way to do that is to refuse to talk bad about each other behind each other's backs. And to handle problems lovingly, face to face. That's what the Bible tells us to do. We handle those problems face to face. And then we pray for each other. Because it's so hard for me to demonize you if I'm praying for you. And then also, we remember that we're not better than anybody else. And if it weren't for the grace of Jesus, I'd be lost in sin and destined for hell right now. We need to insist on these things if we want this to be the church that God has made us to be. Our love and unity should make divisive people uncomfortable. Not because we're better than them, but because we refuse to participate. And we remember that we're just sinners saved by grace. And we constantly remind ourselves that the mission is more important. Why we've been left here, the Great Commission, to go into all the world and preach the gospel. 
We can disagree without being disagreeable. So don't get distracted. We've got to make the cross the center of our life and the focus of your ministry. You have been called to minister to people in this community, in your circle of friends, at your job. And the cross needs to be the center of that. We can't become people that divide because of secondary rules or methods or minor nuances of doctrine. So are you known as gentle and courteous and, and be a respectful person? Can it be said of you, like Titus 3.2 says, that you speak evil of no one, and that you avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people? We need to watch out for being slaves to our own passions and following our anger or following our uh, lust or any other type of passion that is stirred up in us. We need to be careful because we will become slaves of that passion and it always leads to pain. People that remember that they are grace-given people are going to be gracious. We need to fight to be gentle and courteous and respectful. People that understand and remember always that we're just sinners that God saved so that we can be changed by his mercy and grace. These are excellent things. These are profitable things. And this is what a church should look like. So this is the letter that Paul wrote to Titus. And he's challenging us to remember that we are saved to be different. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, God, I pray you help us to look for ourselves in these words that Paul wrote to Titus and to ask where you want to change us, God, and where you want to make us different and make us more like you. God, I pray that we always put the mission on the front and when we get distracted that you would remind our hearts that the things that we're uh, you know, fighting about or, or worried about or have anxiety about, that they're not the most important things. God, help us to behold who you are daily. Help us to wash our heart over the gospel story. And then through that and that love that that uh, stirs up in us and that thankfulness that stirs up in us, God. I pray that we would become who you want us to be. And then, Lord, I help, you, uh, help us to behave in a way that honors you and, and pleases you, God. Help us to go where you want us to go. Help us to do what you want us to do. Help us to be your hands and feet. In your name we pray. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not sure that if you died today, heaven would be your home. Maybe you're listening online. We talked a lot about what it means to be a church and what it means to be a Christian, but maybe you haven't taken those steps yet. You haven't uh, been uh, taken the step to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. But we need to remember, we talked about it this morning, that we're all sinners, that we all fall short. The wages of our sin is death. What we earn and deserve for uh, breaking God's law through our lies and, and saying wicked things and thinking wicked thoughts and we earn our punishment, and that punishment ultimately is, is hell. 
Those are hard things to hear. But God didn't leave it that way. Romans 5.8 says that God commended his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died in your place. He took the punishment that you deserve. The wages that you had earned through your sin, Jesus paid them off through his sacrifice on the cross. See, 2,000 years ago, he lived a perfect and a holy life for 33 years, and then he laid down his life on the cross so that an innocent person could die for all of us guilty people. The Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It seems too easy. It seems too simple that someone else paid off your debt. It seems hard to maybe let go and let God pay the price of your sin. It is simple, but it's not easy. You could call out to God with something like this right now. Words aren't important at all. It's not a magic prayer. It's about accepting that gift and making a decision with your life to turn away from what you're holding on to and accepting the gift that Jesus Christ is handing out to you today. But you could call out to him with something like this. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. And I know because of my sin that I deserve hell. God, please forgive me. Turning from my sin and all that I held on to, and I'm putting my faith in you and you alone. It's the only means of my salvation. That's you today. You made that choice. That's amazing. That's the greatest thing you could ever do. I want to encourage you to reach out to me. Let me know that you made that choice and so that we can begin to come alongside you as a church and tell you the next steps about where you're going. This isn't the end of something. It's the beginning. And it's an amazing adventure. I'd love to tell you about it. Dear Jesus, as we continue to worship, I pray that you would be pleased. God, help us to become the church you want us to be. God, help us to avoid the things you don't want us to have in our our church and in our personal lives. God, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.